welcome to Voyage of Discovery. I'm your host, Mary Osborne, the museum specialist at the Stewart House, the birthplace of Kappa Kappa Gamma. This month, we are continuing with our series of guest speakers, and I have Fran de Simone Beck with me this morning. Fran is a fraternity and sorority historian. She holds a PhD from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Her dissertation explores the growth of women's fraternities and the birth of the National Panhellenic Conference. She's the archivist and historian for Pi Beta Phi and maintains a blog called Fraternity History and More. Welcome to Voyage of Discovery, Fran. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Why don't you tell our listeners a little about the topic you've selected today? Well, we all know that the National Panhellenic Conference um, dates back to 1902, but there was a meeting in 1891 that has fascinated me ever since I, the first time I read about it. And that meeting was called by Kappa Kappa Gamma. So I thought that would be a, a nice little tie-in. And most people don't know about that meeting. In 1890, in August of 1890, the Kappas had their 10th convention in Bloomington, Illinois. And I like to say that's the first and last time anybody ever met in Bloomington, Illinois. Any sorority convention was held there. And at that meeting, and what I find fascinating is that we tend to think of sorority governance as done by older alums. When in reality, in 1890, Kappa's oldest member was not even 40. And the conventions at that point were fairly young women, most of them college age, who were making decisions for the fraternities. And so um, this group of young women, they had an agenda for convention. And in addition to their agenda, they came up with the fact that they thought that the sororities needed to have some cooperation amongst themselves. You know, up until this point in 1890, there were probably 30 campuses where there were more than one chapter of organizations. And on those campuses, the, the women had to sort of cooperate. The organizations at that point were seeking women to join them. And the, the manner in which they went about it varied a lot. Most times it was someone who knew someone who was coming to that college and they tried to get that woman to be a member. You know, so it was on knowing somebody because that's the only way that things got done in those days. Well, I mean, let, let me ask you to kind of set the stage. We, we, you mentioned 1890 um, and, and these campuses. What types of challenges are these sororities facing that would prompt them to say, we need some cooperation? It can't, all, can't be about competition. Well, it is hard for any of our collegians today to realize what life was like in 1890. We tend to think about our own experience and, and we tend to think that that's the way things were. But if you look at 1890 and the things that hadn't been invented that we take for granted, collegians today have always been hooked up to some device from the time they were born. Cell phones have been around since the time they were born. And you've got 
everything at your fingertips. You've got the world at your fingertips. So these women, these Kappas in 1890 who decided to have this meeting, today they'd say, okay, we're gonna have this meeting in Boston in April of 1891. What do, what do we have to do to have this meeting? And we would Google, we would Google who we needed to send invitations to, we would Google the accommodations in Boston and, and we'd look at some reviews as to what hotel we wanted people to stay at and we would call people and we do so much with our devices. But there were no devices in 1870 or 1890. You wrote letters. You wrote letters and you waited for them to be answered. So imagine these women saying, well, we'll have this meeting in Boston in, in April of 1891, and here's what we have to do. And they had to do that in addition to everything else they had to do with their schoolwork and just getting places. You know, we, we, if we want to go somewhere, we just get in our car and go. But in those days, if you wanted to go somewhere, you either walked or you found a large animal to take you in a carriage, or you got on the railroad and, and went somewhere. You know, everything was so much harder. Well, there wasn't even indoor plumbing. Just think of that. Right. Yeah, for the most part, unless you were very wealthy. And mm -hmm. um, that's not the case for most of these women. But <laughs> it's just so many details to manage. Reminds me of the, the episode Kylie and I did about trying to organize a convention. And we, we really do love to talk about transportation, but just all the things that can go wrong. It's, it's a miracle that they even, <laughs> that they even met. That we're here today, yes. I, I think so too. And that they were young women. They didn't have years and years of experience as we would think about council members today. So I, I think it was just wonderful that, that this group, that group of college women at a Kappa convention thought enough to say, well, we need to discuss things with our contemporaries and the, the women whom we're encountering on our various campuses. So they, um, Emily Bright wrote a three-page letter inviting, she was Kappa's grand secretary, and she wrote a three-page letter, and she had to write that same letter six times to the various organizations that she invited. So just think how long it takes to write a three-page letter and then write the same thing six times. We would just make a copy, we'd do an email. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and there was no carbon paper. Mm -hmm. No, uh, no correction tapes. No I mean, even if she could have <laughs> typed it, just yeah. the, uh, the, I think the dedication mm -hmm. and the precision, you know, we have to, I really admire all of that. So I want to briefly talk a, a little bit about Phi chapters, because I think some of our listeners don't know some of the notable women that Phi chapter mm -hmm. has produced. So this is the same chapter that produces Emma Fall Schofield, Beatrice Woodman. B. Woodman uh, is the one who donated the, the poison ring, or it comes from her estate. And Julia Ward Howe was also an honorary member of Phi Chapter. It was founded in 1882 and unfortunately closed in 1971. Well, and one of my favorites is uh, Mary Kingsbury Simkovich. She was a Phi member, wasn't she? She was. She is one of my favorite Kappas, the, the founder of Greenwich House, settlement house worker. 
And she was the chairman of the Central Committee on that 1891 meeting. Mm -hmm. And the Greenwich House is still there today. And, you know, she is one of those fascinating women. The, the one thing that gets me is that people think that our organizations were founded by very wealthy women, which is hardly the case because very wealthy women at the time of our organization's foundings, they didn't go to college. They, did, they had no need to go to college. Right. They just had to find rich husbands or husbands that would keep them in the accommodations they were used to. So maybe they went to Europe on a grand tour, or maybe they went to finishing school, but they really didn't go to college at, at that point. So our organizations were founded by women who wanted to, to do something with their lives or just wanted to be educated. That falsehood, when I, whenever I see it, I cringe because it's just not true. We were founded by daughters of working people. Right, yeah, Midwestern, middle class, and mm -hmm. what we would consider middle class today, intellectuals. Okay, so let's, let's jump ahead to April 16th, 1891, and they're getting ready to meet. And what is on the agenda for oh, this, this meeting? What do they want to accomplish? Well, they had um, that letter that Emily Bright wrote outlined what they wanted to discuss. I will read Emily's words. They had interfraternity courtesy, which included a lot of um, things about what we would consider recruitment. Fraternity jewelry and stationery, World's Fair, meaning the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago, Greek journalism, and inner chapter courtesy. So until that point, there really wasn't a centralized database, if you will, of who was president of each organization. There really weren't even exchanges of, of the fraternity magazine. Usually the editor would try to find a friend who was getting the magazine from the other organizations and try to find information that way. And if you look at some of those old magazines, you'll see that most had a column that said fraternity exchanges. And they would talk about the other groups and what the other groups were doing because the magazines were really a way for the organization to expand. You know, up until that time that the magazine started, there was no way except writing letters again so that you could find out what somebody else on another campus was doing. So the magazines were a way for the organizations to correspond with one another, to tell them what they were doing, to showcase some of their members, and to keep people in touch with one another. Trying to get exchanges between the organizations was something that actually I think did come out of this 1891 meeting, but I don't think it was formalized. I think that it was just an idea that took off from that meeting. Were there sororities? or women's fraternities that weren't invited to this meeting or that were invited and failed to attend? In 1890, when the idea came up, the organizations that had chapters at other schools, there was only one uh, that wasn't on the list, and that was Alpha Chi Omega. And I think that maybe it was because Alpha Chi was started as a music organization 
for music students at DePaul. And in those days, you didn't go to college to study engineering. You were either a classical student or a scientific student. And then at some point, music and art were added, but those were considered special subjects. So you were considered a special student. And if you look at sometimes in that, that time period of the 1880s, 1890s, in the chapter letters to the magazine, it'll say that we took a special student or we took two special students. And those were usually the art and or music students. So Alpha Chi Omega was started for the music students at DePaul. And they didn't change that classification until 1915. So I think maybe that's why they weren't invited. That, that seems logical. But at the 1902 meeting, they were invited and Alpha Chi, and Chi Omega were invited and neither could come to that meeting. So that first 1891 meeting and the 1902 meeting had the same seven groups there. And Alpha Delta Pi and Phi Mu have founding dates in the 1850s, but they didn't expand beyond their campus, their original Wesleyan campus until the 1900s. So that's why they weren't invited because they were just on that one campus. So looking at some of the uh, topics on the agenda, we, we've talked a little bit about inter-chapter courtesy and the idea that, that these organizations need to communicate with one another consistently. I'm really curious about the, the inter-fraternity courtesy. The, the key report on this meeting mentioned that there was an opposition, and, and also Mae Westerman's history <laughs> of, of Kappa mentions that there is this opposition to the practice of lifting and that the organizations wanted the abolition of the practice of pledging and initiating prepar uh, preparatory students. So could you talk a little bit about what lifting is and why, why would they not want to initiate a preparatory student? Well, lifting is when one group tries to take one of the members who has not been initiated from another group in whatever manner, uh, enticing her with just all sorts of wonderful things or doting on her or just getting her to change her mind about where, what group she wants to join. Because in those days, you know, if, if your cousin was a Kappa and you were going to the same school, chances are you would be a Kappa too because your cousin would rush you. The word that everybody knows is rush and she would talk up Kappa and, and tell you why you need, wanted to be a Kappa. And then if you got to the campus and you suddenly realized, well, maybe I don't want to, or maybe I like these women more than the Kappas, that would be considered lifting because she, she was sort of promised to, the, to one group and then another group tries to take her because there were no rules. It, there was no governing body. And unless a campus had a compact between the groups that were there and they had some ground rules. And even if they had ground rules and somebody broke the ground rules, well, you know, what are they gonna do? There's nobody is gonna get in trouble for it because that's just the way it was. Um, but the pledging of preparatory students, a lot of the groups, I know, Monmouth had a classification of students that was preparatory, or sometimes it was sub-freshmen, sub, 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 sub freshmen. Mm -hmm. who were in 
the preparatory school to get ready to go to college or to become a college student. So initiating um, some of those members who might just be 14 or 15, um, there was the thought, well, they need to be college students. They need to be students at the college before they become a member. So that was the prohibition against initiating preparatory students. Now the abolition of pledging, we're still not there totally, but um, you know, so it has been discussed for over a hundred years. Um, and the history, it's interesting how it repeats itself. These, mm -hmm. these topics, they just keep coming up. And I suspect at this meeting, there were a whole lot of topics, like the jewelry topic that just seem ridiculous to us now. Why does it matter where people get their jewelry? And why, why do we need to get stationery from the same stationers? So I don't know if the groups just said, you know, this is just too micromanaging. If you look at the report from about the jewelers, the committee came back and discussed obtaining badges from seven authorized jewelers located in Boston, New York, Chicago, Columbus, San Francisco, Ithaca, and Syracuse. Now, that Ithaca and Syracuse just jumps out at me. Yeah. Why would you have authorized jewelers who are 60 miles from each other. You know, it just doesn't make sense. So you can, I, I like to think that there was a whole lot of discussion and a whole lot of personalities that just wouldn't give in or that yeah. to say Syracuse and Ithaca. Ithaca. I, um, that, that jumped out at me too. I don't know. I'm starting to develop a theory that all of, all roads lead back to Cornell because <laughs> they're in everything. <laughs> they're in everything and Cornell produces so many women of, of repute to go you know engineers doctors uh, writers so it, it's just the, just the influence that they must have exuded at the time that yeah I think you're right <laughs> <laughs> well and the um I was looking at one of the Kappa keys from that time period and the your jeweler was in Ithaca R.A. Hedgian brother so I don't know if that was one of the one of the reasons why Ithaca comes up, but yeah. <laughs> another thing is they really didn't leave a whole lot of time for discussion. There were a whole lot of social events around this meeting, but there wasn't much time for discussion. So the committees met and discussed and then reported. And I think it was just maybe three hours discussion at the max. Right. Yeah, the meeting well, itself. Well, that might have had something to do with it, too. The meeting itself is not very long. I don't know if you've done much research into the the World's Fair uh, aspect of, of this, this convention and what they were talking about, but I, I find all of that really fascinating because the Columbian Exposition, Exposition of 1893, there's so much going on with the White City and the Woman's Building and all these displays, and there's a, you know, a serial killer running around <laughs> in Chicago. It's just <laughs> it's a crazy time. Um, but what uh, what were what were these women interested in? What did they they hope to accomplish at the World's Fair? Well, I thought that, I think that they thought it was a great opportunity to showcase their organizations. At this point, membership, the combined membership in those seven organizations, was not very much. You think about the size of chapters, the oldest, if you look at 1867 as being the oldest, that's just not, you know, 25 years of membership and in a chapter that at, at its height might be 20 members a year, 25 members a year. 
So the combined number of women who were members is not all that much. And so by showcasing the organizations in the women's building, it was hoped that people would know what these organizations were. And there was great hope at that 1891 meeting that the chapters in, at Northwestern would help get things going on the exhibit at the 1893 World's Fair. And it just turned out that from what I can tell by reading the men's magazines of that era, because the men also wanted a presence, that there was a, a hefty fee, 2000 is what I'm recalling, 2000 in 1893 dollars. Oh my goodness. <laughs> for a, a presence, a real presence at the, at the exposition. So what ultimately happened was Fraternity Day at the fair, which was July 19th and July 20th, 1893. And it was a fraternity congress, as it was called. And women and men gave talks. Um, I know that Gertrude Blackwelder, who was a University of Kansas Pi Beta Phi member, read a paper that was entitled The Ethical Influence of Fraternities. And that is published in one of our arrows. And you would think that it would just be so pertinent to today. That's what I was thinking. um, The title holds such promise, but it was clearly written for the 1890s and it just goes on and on and on. (laughs) Pages and pages. You know, there were a group of of, um, fraternity men and women who did meet at this Congress and, you know, had a good time, but little came of anything of the great plans that they had laid at that 1891 meeting. And I think it was out of really out of their control because I think that they ran up against fair promoters who were not agreeable to helping them out. How did we get from this initial meeting in 1891 to the NPC that we know today? Well, as I said, 1891, that 1891 meeting brought the women to realize that they needed to at least work together on their own campuses. In the ensuing 10 years, as the system grew and more groups joined uh, each other on campuses, things just really started to get out of hand. A Theta from Nebraska wrote in her magazine, rushing is very violent here in Nebraska and every one of us would like to see it modified at least. First, if we could only stop rushing, that is, rushing in the full sense of the word, that violent round of social affairs which still takes place every year with many of our chapters. Of course, we must become acquainted with new girls, but we can do it with dignity. We can talk to them sensibly instead of trying to see how much fun we can make them have and show them the serious and beautiful side of theta life, not the frivolous. Girls who would not care more for this side would not make good thetas. So I think there was, it was coming to the realization that there needed to be rules and there needed to be cooperation between the organizations to bring more people into the organizations and to do it sensibly and with some structure. And so that 1902 meeting was called by an Alpha Phi, was called by the Alpha Phi, national president. And they met in Chicago and they finally just started discussing the most important thing. And that was some rules about recruitment and, and bringing new members in. But I think that 10 years between them 
there was great growth of the system. New groups were coming in in the 1890s, Alpha Z Delta, Pi Omega, and AO Pi. And so there were a whole host of groups that were coming about. And so it took a couple of people to say, we really need to do something and we really need to have cooperation between the groups. Well, is there anything else that you would you would like to say about the establishment of NPC or this 1891 meeting before we conclude? Oh, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at either of those meetings because, you know, with our organizations, I, I have a basic ground rule that everyone thinks their own organization is the best, and that's the way it should be. Because if I said to you, well, I like your organization more than I like more my organization, I would think, well, something's a little fishy there. But the way that I like to think of it is that Hi-Fi is like my children, but Cap is like a niece. I mean, we are all family. Who understands us better than each other? And if we look at each other as competition rather than as a sibling of sorts, then we're going to be in real big trouble because we need to stick together. We saw that with the Harvard case, that we needed to be united in our stance against what was being done to the chapters there. And so I think that we need to love one another and respect each other's organization, even though our own is special to us. We can't be competitors because we have to be allies. Thanks for joining me today, Fran. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Next month, we'll hear from Denise Rugani, Kappa's Ritual and History Director. I'm Mary Osborne for Voyage of Discovery. Voyage of Discovery is recorded at the Stewart House, an educational outreach program of the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit the Foundation's page on kappa.org. Like us on Facebook and follow Stewart House 1865 on Instagram. Thanks for listening.